This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, KCBS listeners. Thanks for joining us for the inaugural edition of How to Bay Area. Quick programming note, though, before we get started. Just wanted to point out that when we recorded this show, we were still in the Thanksgiving holiday sort of time frame. But... Production, 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 and here we are in January, just releasing the show now. Wanted to make sure I pointed that out just so you're not confused by any of the time references you're going to hear during the program. So apologies for the time warp, but otherwise everything should be good to go. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to How To Bay Area, the show that tells you how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Keith Manconi. I'm Jenna Lane. And today we're going to discuss hunger and the efforts here in the Bay to address it. Uh, first, a few words on what we're trying to do here. How To Bay Area is a completely new podcast and uh, the hope is that it kind of falls under the mission statement of KCBS. KCBS, of course, being a very practical station, uh, you know, you can come here to find out where the traffic jams are, how to avoid it, you know, where the cheapest gas is. Uh, Jenna, I'm sure that a lot of your reporting is geared towards giving people news that they can use. Absolutely. And so this podcast on that theme, we hope will help you better understand some of the great work that people in the community are doing, why it matters and how you can get engaged, too. Today, we will be speaking about hunger in the Bay Area and some of the people doing great work to address it. Now, this is not necessarily something that we report on every day here on KCBS, but for those who face it, it is a fact of daily life. Uh, Jenna, I know that I, I myself have already, you know, I've only been working here at KCBS a, a couple of times, but this issue of hunger is something that's come up in my reporting more than once. I'm curious, has it come up in yours as well? For sure. And uh, of course, it often comes up around the holidays, right? We always hear about food drives, uh, Thanksgiving turkey drives or canned food and, and things like that um, at this wintry time of year. And I've never really been sure why we don't also talk about it at other times of year. Uh, but I can also say that I've done a lot of stories about um, encouraging. There are, there are a lot of food banks in the Bay Area that encourage people who might be making that decision between paying the rent or mm. buying some fresh food, yeah, um, they encourage them to sign up for the, the food benefits that are available around here, whether it's shopping at one of those food bank food pantries, shopping, quotes around shopping because it's really just selecting mm -hmm. free uh, food, or saying you can sign up for CalFresh. Did you know, for example, that students often qualify for CalFresh benefits because their incomes tend to be below the, the threshold for that? So those are the kinds of stories that KCBS listeners would have would have heard. Right. Absolutely. And, you, you know, because we are a news station, we're so driven by the news cycle. I'm hoping a show like this can really drill down into something that 
isn't necessarily in the news today, but is affecting people throughout the year. And we can really take a look at what are the day-to-day activities that people are doing to make life a little bit better for those in our community, really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. And so to do that, uh, what you and I have both done is gone out and interviewed two organizations that are working on this. Uh, You interviewed one, I interviewed another, and I'm very excited to hear in a second uh, what you have put together. I I don't know too much about it. You don't know too much about what I have, uh, but we're going to kind of go on this journey together. All right. So to start things off, uh, we're actually going to start with a food bank operating in the South Bay, that being the Second Harvest Food Bank. This is a group that I spoke to. This is a, a, a huge food bank serving the Silicon Valley-ish region. Uh, specifically, they are serving the counties of San Mateo and Santa Clara. Uh, according to numbers provided by Second Harvest Food Bank, they serve an average of 260,000 people every month. Uh, and they work with more than 300 nonprofits to distribute that food to uh, many drop, drop-off points throughout the counties. So they go to places like schools, pantries, soup kitchens, shelters, senior centers. It really is a, a huge operation. 260,000 people, you know, that's... Every month. Every month. Yeah. Every month. And that's just on average, you know, when we're in the Thanksgiving holiday season right now. So those numbers are certainly much higher during this season. So clearly a a, a great need there. So to give a sense of uh, the work that they're doing and who is actually benefiting from all this, I want, I thought the best place to start with would be to introduce you to one of the folks that is on the receiving end of some of these food donations. So to start out with, I want to introduce you to Jose Rodriguez, who I caught up with at Second Harvest Warehouse in San Carlos. Hola, ¿qué tal? Muy buenas tardes. Estamos aquí desde los Estados Unidos de Norteamérica en las... In Mexico, host was a radio presenter, as you can hear right no there. <laughs> Could give us a run for our money. Absolutely. But uh, he moved to the U.S. late last year with his wife, uh, who was pregnant at the time. And when he got here, he was in a bit of a tight spot. Uh, he made it here just on his own savings, but realized quickly, as many of us do, the Bay Area is an expensive place to be. It's like a paradox, no? We live in the Silicon Valley, all these decks and, and all the money, but the way of living is, is too, too expensive. In a foreign land with little money, no place to stay, a pregnant wife, he says his struggle was almost biblical. I felt in that moment like the Bible story about Joseph, Maria, and Jesus. It's safe to say he was up against a lot. Honestly, I was worried to become um, homeless, no? And I start to live in the, in the streets and seeking in the garbage, and, and that's all. So I remember in, in one night I start to pray and say, why we are here, no? And, and, and the next day is like the uh, open skies. By which he means he found a job, a place to stay, and also discovered Second Harvest Food Bank. He says the food donations he got there made a huge difference. Because uh, we all not only receive uh, food, we received uh, healthy food and vegetables, fruit, enough food for my family, you know. So that's just one of the people on the receiving end of Second Harvest's work, but he's far from alone, as we'll hear in a second. So let's zoom out for a second to take a look at that paradox that Host was talking about, 
You know, that we live in this affluent Silicon Valley region where we have... All the money, but the way of living is, is too, too expensive. For so many of the people that we serve, they are just struggling to make ends meet month to month. That second voice, that's Second Harvest CEO Leslie Bacho, who was also at the San Carlos warehouse, busy overseeing the Thanksgiving rush of holiday donations. Even though the economy has been booming, wages have remained relatively flat, particularly outside of the tech sector. And at the same time, we have these skyrocketing housing costs. So what we're finding is we are serving more and more families who are working, maybe even working two jobs, and still struggling to make it month to month. Second Harvest estimates that about 700,000 people are at risk for hunger in Silicon Valley. To put that in perspective, that's about one in four. And Leslie says that hunger comes in many forms. When you're struggling to make your budget every week, often food is the first to go because you have to pay your rent, you have to pay your medical bills, and people end up skimping when it comes to food. So often food insecurity looks like skipping meals. It looks like families, parents not eating so they can feed their kids. It looks like people having to make tough choices like resorting to fast food, just very cheap, easy, available alternatives. So I'm going to play for you now my conversation with Leslie about what it takes to run a food bank here in Silicon Valley. She started from the very beginning when they first receive the food that will be donated. Much of the product that comes in needs to be sorted and um, culled and then reboxed. So there is this huge kind of volunteer handling component of it that has to happen. So there's the Some of the food we order, some of the food comes in as a surprise. There's the quickly handling in our warehouse, predominantly through a volunteer workforce. And then there is the getting it back out to our partners and then getting it out to our sites. We we distribute the food directly. And that is a big part of our focus is just on our own distribution outlets and how to really continue to grow those, how to better market those sites so people know that they're available, how to ensure that um, those sites are as welcoming as possible. And so, first and foremost, what your role is, is to uh, collect the food, warehouse the food, and then distribute the food. Is that, is that about right? That's right. And again, we do that through partners. We have over 300 partners. So a lot of our partners, they might be a soup kitchen that's providing meals. They might be a shelter. They might be an after-school program. And, but the majority are these monthly or bi-monthly or even weekly distributions of fresh groceries where we are bringing those groceries to a school or affordable housing site or one of our partner agencies and then that is getting distributed out to um, people in that neighborhood. And so do you deal directly with the folks that need the food or or is that mostly those uh, second distributors? Some of our sites we are directly distributing at and some of our sites we are doing that through partners. But I should mention that a critical part of what we do are volunteers. So all of those sites that are distributing groceries, and often they're distributing to, to, say, 200 families at a time, we really rely on volunteers at those distribution sites to help distribute the food. So just like we have volunteers in our warehouse today helping to repack the food, out at our sites we have thousands of volunteers helping to get the food out to people who need it. Okay, so that is a little bit of information on the distribution side. What about the collecting? How do you get your sources of food? 
Well, that has really changed over the years. I've been in food banking for over 20 years now, and in the beginning, we received a lot of canned goods, a lot of um, non-perishable items, and we received a lot of donations from manufacturers. But of course, manufacturers have become much more efficient in how they do their work, and now they have markets like dollar stores and um, markets overseas where they can sell the product that used to come to food banks. And fortunately, at the same time that was happening, here in California, we started partnering with packers and growers in the Central Valley to get more and more fresh produce. So now over half of what we distribute is fresh produce. And what that looks like is um, it might be stone fruit, peaches and nectarines that are blemished. You wouldn't see them in a safe way, but they're still perfectly delicious. They'll come to the food bank in giant totes, and we'll use volunteers to sort through them, inspect them, and repack them in cases to go out to a site. We might get oranges that are too small or too big. We might get apples that are sunburned, but again, delicious on the inside. As um, we've gotten more sophisticated, crops that are picked in the field, like broccoli, where if the broccoli prices drop, they might just plow it under. We actually, as a network, will pay for them to harvest it, and then we'll, broccoli will come to us for, say, maybe you know, 11 cents a pound. So all this produce, even if we're paying a handling fee, on average, it's no more than about 10 cents a pound. So you can imagine the value versus what you could buy in the supermarket. We do also purchase food. About 25% of what we purchase is um, protein items that we can't get donated, so dairy, chicken, eggs. And because we are able to purchase in bulk, we're able to negotiate really great prices. And then we also have a big retail store pickup program. We go to almost 100 retail stores. Some our partners go to directly. Many of those we go to ourselves at the end of each day to pick up um, items that are close to expiration but are still um, fine to consume. And we get those quickly out to our sites. So there's a certain amount of hustling that goes into just finding all these different sources that uh, those of us that have never had to think about this before, it would never even occur to us. Yes, there's pretty much constant hustling in the food bank business. And that is one thing is we have to be very flexible because, you know, the markets are always changing. We're always looking for new sources. Right now we have um, a great source, which is Amazon Fresh. And when that product comes to us, though, it comes to us rather jumbled up with lots of different products together. So we use volunteers to separate that, repack it, case it in ways that we can send it out to our sites, but it's a great source of food. But again, we're always having to kind of change our operating model to adapt to what sort of um, food is available to us. You might imagine how much we had to change to be able to handle all this fresh produce, but of course that was wonderful because we want to be able to provide more nutritious items. But now that we're providing so much produce, we're also doing a lot of nutrition education and providing a lot of recipes for how to prepare butternut squash, how to prepare eggplant, for how to handle items that people might not be as familiar with. What are some of the most unusual sources of food you've ever gotten the chance to use? Oh, gosh. Well, um, we are always getting, um, well, sometimes we get produce that is really like crazy looking potatoes or um, staff are always pulling out like a carrot that looks like their uncle or, you know, just really unusually shaped uh, items. What does that Um, say about their uncles? I don't know. I'm not going to mention any names. Um, (laughs) And or, you know, we're always getting donations from 
markets of things that might be unusual items that maybe um, you know that are just culturally very different that we're not all familiar with. So we're always having to um, talk with staff and with partners to figure out how to best utilize those. Sometimes we get items that were the result of a failed test market. And so we might get items where you look at the packaging and you understand why it ended up at a food bank. Um, so that happens too. But we try to overall provide the highest quality items we can. Didn't you mention that there was uh, like disgraced sports stars or something? That has happened when Michael Phelps had um, some issues. He was on the Cheerios box, and so Cheerios very quickly wanted to ditch that product when Michael Phelps had his little scandal several years ago. So suddenly we got a big influx of Cheerios with Michael Phelps. His loss is your gain, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I notice in the run-up to Thanksgiving, uh, you guys are collecting turkeys. So you, you, you do have a lot of canned food, but you also have some perishable products. Is that an extra challenge to make sure that everything is uh, preserved and ready to go when it's uh, distributed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, really the majority, when you consider all the fresh produce of what we distribute, is perishable. So that is a challenge because we have to distribute a lot of it just in time. We've just expanded our cooler and freezer at our one of our facilities in San Jose to be able to accommodate this extra product. Product. During the holidays, we have a whole refrigerated truck that we just set aside just for turkeys because we will provide 40,000 um, turkeys this holiday season. You hear a lot of talk about turkeys during the holidays, but we actually provide even more chickens to all of the households that we serve because for many of our households, they don't have conventional kitchens. They don't have large enough ovens to be able to prepare a turkey. So we actually distribute about 80,000 chickens over the holiday season because that is something that is more is easier for many of our clients to use. So you guys, in a way... I mean, it's, it's not so very different, I would imagine, from running a, a, like a, a supermarket or, or a grocery store. That's right. We have many of the same challenges that grocers have. I would say what's even more challenging is that we often don't know, we can't predict the food that's coming in as well as um, you could in a retail business. So, you, again, you have to remain very flexible as to the sources of food and how you need to handle them. What would be some of the craziest things about your operations that folks that have never worked here might not think of? Again, I find people are just surprised by the scale of it. They don't expect to come into our... Many of our warehouses kind of look like a mini Costco, and they're surprised to see that. They're surprised with just the logistical challenges. Again, um, I've hired many people from the private sector to help with our operations, and they are always amazed by just the variability of what comes in. You know, oftentimes you're receiving a truckload of something. You don't know what's on the truck until you open the door. And so it does require constantly being creative and also turning things around quickly because so much of it is per what we distribute is perishable and it often comes to us with not a lot of life on it. So we have to be really quick on our feet in terms of how we handle it. Not a lot of life on it. That's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> well, not a lot of days. So yeah. we can't just sit on it for weeks and weeks. We have to get it out pretty immediately. You're, it, it's like a, a grocery store, except it's like Tetris, where you need to move all the blocks into place before they hit the bottom. That's right. And what's really different about it that I love is that we are reliant on so many volunteers and community partners really coming together to make this happen. Um, as I described, we have thousands of volunteers. We have food donors. We have financial donors. We have all of our part nonprofit partners. We partner with um, government agencies. It really takes thousands of people coming together together 
to make something really special happen. And that's what I like about it is even in these times when there's so much divisiveness, there's so much negative news, it's a chance for people to come together and do something really positive. Once again, that was Leslie Bacho, the CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank. Now, before I turn things back to Jenna, uh, I want to highlight one other issue food banks in the Bay Area and uh, actually elsewhere in the country are facing these days. Well, first of all, we should mention that one of the largest communities that food banks serve is, of course, the immigrant community. Uh, But given the current political climate uh, and some of the policies adopted by the Trump administration, many in the immigrant community are a little bit reluctant to accept food donations. Uh, I was told by Leslie that uh, many worry that accepting food from Second Harvest might either impact their immigration status, which, by the way, it won't, or they worry that Second Harvest is a government agency that will collect information on their immigration status. It isn't, and they don't. But these perceptions remain, and uh, so they have had to work to counteract them. You may remember Hose, our radio announcer from Mexico. Well, he isn't just a client of Second Harvest. Now he is an employee, too. His job is, on the one hand, to find sources for food donations, but on the other, he's also tasked with outreaching to people and convincing them to accept donations. Both sizes of the work, to encourage to give, but to encourage to receive. And given what we just discussed, you know, that's not always easy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, even though they are literally giving this food away. It's like a sales, uh, sales work because I need to convince all the people that it's, it's for free, it's not government, uh, you, you, your kids not be required for the army. Lucky for him, he's actually also, in addition to his radio career, he's also got a background in sales. (laughs) Uh, And so given the fact that he's somebody that has this firsthand experience as somebody who's been on the receiving end of these donations as well, he's kind of the perfect person to be making this case. Uh, And, you know, to me, that really just underscores the level of mistrust and the level of anxiety uh, that many in the immigrant community are feeling right now, that they would need to be sold on food that many of them uh, really need. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to people who receive food assistance from food banks and other places, too, who um, I do think that whether they're in an immigrant community or not, uh, I've heard them say that there is a bit of pride Mm -hmm. that keeps them from accepting this kind of help with something that is so basic. Mm -hmm. There is just nothing more day to day than eating. Right. I mean, eating, sleeping, breathing. These are (laughs) fundamental things. And Uh, I've heard people say that they feel bad, that this is something that they can't manage without help. Yeah, and actually, Leslie talked a lot about the effort that they are going through right now to make some of their uh, food drives and food delivery services seem more acceptable and welcoming to kind of take some of the stigma away from uh, accepting food. Because, you know, when you hear some of those numbers, this is not something that should have any stigma attached to it if a quarter of people are in this category. You know, and I think one of the secrets to success of the folks that I interviewed for this podcast is that they're really all about empowering people, Mm. Um, not just to stand and and receive a delivery of free food, although that is part of their operation, too. 
uh, but to really get involved in growing the food yourself. All right. And folks at home, if you didn't just catch what happened right there, that was an expert transition from transition extraordinaire Jenna Lane, who is going to tell us about the group that she uh, interviewed. I'm very eager to hear about this. Right. So so you've been telling us about how to get food to people who cannot afford it. They're just struggling to make ends meet and, and they need help with that. But let's say that you live in a neighborhood where you want and maybe even can afford nutritious food. But there are very few places to find it. This is what some people call a food desert. And one neighborhood that a lot of people think falls into that category is Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco. This is a neighborhood with high rates of poverty. And in recent years, it has not had a lot of grocery stores that sell fresh produce. You certainly see plenty of convenience stores and corner stores. And there have been some efforts on the part of city government to encourage those convenience stores to um, rearrange their 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 racks and their display cases to feature the apples and the bananas instead of the chips and the candy right up front. But in general, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has designated the Bayview as a food desert just meaning that people who live there have to travel far to reach a supermarket that has fresh and healthy food. But community organizer Kenneth Hill has an even stronger word for it. I actually think it's a food swamp because there's a lot of food here, but it's just not quality good food. It's very unhealthy food. Kenneth is with a local group called Hunter's Point Family, and he was saying that the lack of access to quality food has real health consequences. There's come a lot of diabetes and hypertension um, within the community, and we're trying to mediate a lot of those problems by providing people uh, fresh, healthy food here in the community. What he's talking about is something called the Bayview Growers Market. So this market started up in mid-August. It was open on Saturdays through mid-November. And Hunter's Point family set it up at a place that's already very food-oriented, freshness-oriented, the Mm. Florence Fang Community Garden. This is a plot of land that's sort of above the Caltrain tracks and not too far from 3rd Street, kind of the main artery Mm -hmm. of the Bayview. And so what happens every Saturday is the food bank comes and opens up the truck and, and makes a delivery, right? So a lot of people line up 8, 8.30 in the morning. For, for food. And then... So at this community garden, they also are receiving some food bank services. Yeah. So the food bank comes to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And has... Uh, it's just sort of like a central meeting point mm. for people in the neighborhood who, who may want to get those services. Mm-hmm. And it's very on brand for, for the Florence Fang Community Garden. It's just they're all about food and mm-hmm. making food accessible and making fresh good food. Accessible. Whatever whatever variety of food, whatever delivery source, that's what they're about. Right. Right. So long lines for that. And then I don't know if this is why Hunter's Point family decided to set up there because there was already a lot of people hanging around. But then the growers market starts up. Okay. So Hunter's Point family coordinates this. That's where Kenneth Hill's from, the gentleman we just heard from, talking about the real health consequences for mm-hmm. not having good health, healthy food in a neighborhood. And they bring in growers from all around the neighborhood. They sell herbs, vegetables, fruit, you name it, and they try to make it so that everything sold there is grown within a one-mile radius. 
growers from around the neighborhood. You mean folks that are growing in Bayview Hunters Point? Yep. Yep. And I was actually surprised to learn how many tiny little gardens there huh. are. There's a lot of them, but they're they're tiny. And yeah, um, it might be, you know, you might be passing by a park and notice that there are, are three or four raised beds in that park. Okay. That may be one of the places that these vegetables come from. Okay. When you find them at the at But the they're actually market. making food that folks might eat at a, at a meal, at dinner yeah, time. Yeah, I asked what were some of the popular foods. We talked about things like uh, collard greens, mm. uh, for example, a lot of herbs that people like to, to put in their foods. But, you know, between the food bank delivery, the growers market, and all kinds of volunteers, they're building a stage for community events and performances, this Florence Fan Community Garden is really a magnet in the neighborhood. And I found a lot of enthusiasm there for the garden itself and for gardening. It's, uh, it's part of my desire to be volunteer, help the community, and being able to enjoy myself. Just being able to get in the soil and being able to connect with gardening is very, it's very therapeutic on a lot of levels. I think the garden is just a really great place to be in general, just like to sit around or just to water the plants for a few hours. Like people don't get, a lot of people don't get an opportunity to do stuff like this. The food is, the strawberries are my favorite thing, but yeah, the food is great, yeah you hungry there. <laughs> strawberries, huh? Did you try any of those strawberries? There were none for sale that particular day. It was, you know, they're a little bit more of a summer. One of those things about local growing, yeah, you actually have to pay attention to the seasons. Yeah. yeah. I, I did, though, I was offered a beautiful head of cauliflower. There's okay. a small gift for you. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. Awesome. They're very okay. beautiful. Okay. <laughs> I got a little tour of the garden. <laughs> um, met some of the people who, who make it thrive. That started with the person who offered me the cauliflower, Johnny Chen. He is the manager of the Florence Fang Community Garden and showed me what they're growing there. Yeah, you see, this is uh, the, the uh, snow bean, snow peas. Snow peas, yes. Snow peas, yeah. Okay. And uh, Now, besides all these wonderful fresh vegetables, he says a big goal here is to help build community in the neighborhood. To meet together, uh, even the different races, so that we can join together and then make a harvest to everyone. And does it work? It works. It works. The Bayview, as you may know, has been, at least in recent decades, a historically African-American neighborhood. But the demographics have been changing a lot in recent years. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a minute. Chen says that until the garden came along in 2014, he didn't really see different ethnic communities having many opportunities to mix and mingle. But right now they are friends already. Even we don't know how to speak their language, but we communicate by body language. That is Alberto Rivas. He comes up from Burlingame to volunteer in this garden. That's how much he likes it. He works his own plot, but he also helps all around the garden. He says he works with one woman whose native language is... Cantonese. And his is... Spanish. So he says communicating in the garden is sort of this mix of spoken word and body language. I know when she bring the knife, mean cut it. <laughs> when she put the finger on the ground, mean she plant it. Plant it. <laughs> Excellent. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because... You know, you learn uh, to be more tolerant and be able... To, those people here, mostly they are seniors, which they start from the beginning. And this is one of the activities they do every day or every weekend, and they enjoy, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
one of the people who has a plot there and who will help us dig a little deeper into the gardening project and what it means for the community is Hannah Lloyd. She grows stuff in the Florence Fang Garden. She is also a vendor at the Growers Market. And she started off our conversation talking about the difference between a grower's market and a farmer's market. A grower's market is more locally based. Um, It's uh, less um, regulations than a farmer's market, which you need to be certified and there's certain steps and procedures. Grower's market is... um, it's a little bit more less formal because it's uh, catering to uh, community uh, gardens and um, local residents who are growing produce in their backyard and who are setting up a booth here at the... So it's, it's basically neighbors selling food to neighbors. I had no idea that there were so many gardens, neighborhood gardens around here. Can you tell me, like sort of how many there are, what what sorts of things grow well here, what, what do people bring and, and sell at the market? Yeah, um, well, there's about, I think, eight or nine. Um, Alice Griffith, uh, Home Abundance, uh, Northridge Community Garden, um, Horizons. Uh, they sell a lot of tomatoes. We have actually quite a few um, bee people, beehives, um, people selling honey. Uh, a lot of herbs. Uh, rosemary grows well here. A lot of collard greens. Um, the Bayview Hunters Point is kind of a melting pot. You know, it's a, it, at one point it was a predominantly actually um, Italians and Portuguese a long time ago. And then during the, the 50s and 60s, there was a black migration from the south that came here. So there was a lot of black people here in the area. So there's a lot of, you know, black culinary type vegetables with the collards and, and those types of greens. Um, but now it's it's mixing. There's a lot of Latin and Asians over here. So it's, I'd say the Bayview is like a real true representation of America and San Francisco, really, which is a very melting pot type city. So the food should the be food, too. Yeah, and the, and the food is too. Yeah, for sure. And you yourself are one of those growers, but mm-hmm. you don't you don't necessarily grow tomatoes and, and things like that. What what's your sort of specialty? So my niche here at the growers market is uh, nursery plants, seeds, um, organic soil, which is different than regular soil, um, in that it's uh, from a uh, certified organic supplier of the soil. Um, it doesn't have like a city type compost stuff that comes from your green or, or blue bins. Um, so that's the difference there. So I just help people get started growing as opposed to just selling what I grow. I help people to start growing. Why is that important? Um, if you look at it from an economic point of view, a lot of the cost in the produce that you buy in the store is transportation, trucking, labor. So if you grow it locally, then you're cutting out the middleman and the transportation costs, and it's a lot cheaper from yard to table. So if I came here as a customer on a Saturday morning, how much cheaper might I find a, a head of cauliflower or a pound of tomatoes to be? Um, I would say anywhere from maybe uh, $1 to $2, but, you know, definitely it's going to be a $0.50 cents to a dollar difference because 
um, you know, the farmers who grow vegetables on a, on a mass level, it's kind of cheaper for them, whereas a local gardener, it, it's cheaper, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're, they're spending a lot more capital on the, on the shovel and the dirt and the seeds, and, and they're not doing the, the, the quantity that would bring their costs down. They just don't have the transportation factor there. Um, and what do you find people, uh, customer-wise, get the most excited about, or, or how do people respond to to the market even existing? Oh, a lot of people, they're surprised. They're like, oh, I didn't know this was here. And they get excited because they, they like the idea of just supporting people. Sometimes people will pay a premium um, just for a good cause and for their neighbors and for the sake of the community. And, and that that's the supportive part. It's, and then people just getting out and just getting to know each other and supporting each other, you know, and, and the convenience and the speed of it, right? So, like, if you need some uh, rosemary and you know there's a neighbor down the street that's growing it you don't have to go to the store you can you know either knock on the door or call them or you can go to the growers market and and support your neighbor that way so I, I think it's really good community building really at the end of the day it's all about people helping people and that's kind of what the grower market does it it helps people get out away from all the computer screens and tvs and just sort of going back to earth you know and you said that the market just started in August. Yeah. Can you talk about goals for expanding it or, or reaching more people? Or how, how do you hope it will look, you know, a year from now? Oh, a year from now? Well, we hope to get the word out to more people. Um, the location that we had before, it was um, it was uh, more near 3rd Street, near the Walgreens uh, parking lot over there, which actually kind of got better traffic than here. But this is a more urban space. It's, it's a more, it's a space where there, there's already a garden where people can actually come and buy the vegetables, but they can walk over to the Florence Fang and see them growing and actually understand the process and, appre- and appreciate the, the freshness and the organic part of it. That's the part that I really appreciate, just the, the sociability part of it and just being able to let our kids know that, you know, you don't have to feel like you have to go hungry. You can actually grow a salad in your backyard. It doesn't have to take forever, you know. Plants can grow, microgreens can grow in a couple of weeks, a couple of days, really. Um, so it helps with the food insecurity. Uh, it also, you know, um, it was hard for us to get uh, regular farmers to come up here. So by being able to, to do a local thing, we empowered the local people to be able to, to grow their own food and to sell and share the excess of it, really. Because, you know, if you if you take a pallet, 4 by 4 pallet, you can actually grow enough food there, not only for yourself, but to share share with your neighbor so depending on what you're growing it it doesn't take much and and you get a lot more than you can eat and so that part is great yeah I was wondering if how many people really can live off of what they what they grow or um, how most people use it you know maybe as a supplement to what they might get at the store or yeah I I would say more supplement really you know um, my goal one year is to grow everything on my Thanksgiving table but the turkey Right, so if everything on my table comes from the garden throughout the year, being able to can it, freeze it, and bring it out for Thanksgiving, you know, and to say, not only did I make this, but you know, this was made by me, you know, it's a great goal. Although I, I don't think we can go cranberries around here, so yeah, but, but we can we can jam and jelly it, and yeah. so that's that yeah. that's another part. Yeah, yeah, um, and I noticed that you have a. 
group of young people with yes. you here today. One of them was like, "You want to go to McDonald's after?" I'm, and I was just wondering how this what, how this message gets through to young people. Well, first of all, I let them know that, you know, you can make things that taste even better from McDonald's, right? You don't have to go there to buy a smoothie. You can make a smoothie here. You don't have to go there to buy french fries. We can grow the potatoes and we can fry the potatoes. So, you know, and our potatoes can be just as good, if not better, than McDonald's. So um, I, I think, but, you know, it's it's the quickness of it, you know. This generation is kind of, I call them the Pop-Tart, you know. They kind of want it instantaneously. And so growing is kind of a slow, it's a slow food, you know. But I tell them they're in control of what they eat because when you open a box and you open a can, you're not in control of what you're eating. You're eating what somebody has put in there and the things they've added. Whereas if you grow it, you're in control of how that plant came up and what you put on that plant. So it, it gives them a, a, an empowerment that they can grow their own food, they don't have to go hungry, and they know what it is they're eating, right? If you look at a bag of potato chips, if it's just regular potato chips, maybe it's potatoes, grease, salt, a few things. You look at Cheetos, for example, it's my favorite example. So if you look at Cheetos, you got hydrochloric, blah, 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 a lot of long scientific In- Ingredients words. that you can't ingredients pronounce. Ingredients you can't pronounce. It's a paragraph, right? So, you know, it's, you're eating, either you're going to eat a, you know, less than five ingredients or you're going to eat a paragraph of something you can't pronounce. And that's that's the main thing I try to point to them is being in control of what they put in their mouth by actually being in control of what growth. So we hear a little bit of what I was talking about before, sort of the secret of their success. And really, if you can get teenagers excited about what you're doing, <laughs> by any measure, you are successful, right? Is the, um, sort of that empowerment. And and the teenagers that were there that day, they were talking about, hey, does somebody want to go to McDonald's after? Mm-hmm. You but got them. They also, you know, they have a real strong sense that when they feel like they're in control mm-hmm. uh, of, of what they're eating... Mm-hmm. They feel better about it. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting that the thing that is the intersection for so many things in this community is all about food. It, it, sh- it just shows that it's at the cross-section of so many things in your society, whether it's, you know, your communities coming together across ethnic lines or whether it's people just learning about the soil. It really is something that people can gather around. Yeah, and the Bay Area is so well-known, right, for being such a great food scene, not only because of our proximity to the amazing agriculture of of California, but just that food around here is something you mostly think of as something, it's all about enjoyment and and restaurants and top chefs. Mm -hmm. Crafts, bespoke, artisanal, artisanal, organic, free range, Mm -hmm. whatever you may have. And all of that is true, and, you know, we certainly do talk about the the very high-end stuff here on KCBS, but it is important to be reminded every now and then that uh, there are many folks that food means something very different. That's right. And just to kind of close things out, bring back in the perspective of uh, Leslie Bacho, the CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank, uh, I think that she kind of illustrated this disparity uh, best. That is one of the hardest things that that I struggle with is 
we are surrounded by so much abundance, so much wealth, and yet we have so many of our neighbors that are really struggling to make it day to day. And people who are filling critical roles, people who are teachers, who are nurses, who are um, who are serving your lunch, who you are, you know, your dry cleaner. Like many people are that are in these service jobs are really struggling. And that's what I have a hard time with because we do have the resources available to us to make a difference in this. On the flip side, though, I do not want to end the show on uh, a downer kind of note. On the flip side, she also pointed out, and we heard many examples of this today, is that there are so many people working to make the food situation better in the Bay Area, whether they are people that are volunteering at a food bank or whether they are people that are showing up and putting in the hours, uh, just volunteering at a local garden, community garden. And so there are people showing up and doing the work here in the Bay Area. And from Leslie's perspective, she says that that is a huge source of encouragement for doing the work that she does. That's what keeps me going in this job is that there are so many people who want to help and we have thousands of people engaged in doing this work with us. We really cannot end hunger alone and that's what it takes is so many people coming together and we see that all the time. If you go out to our sites, not only do you see um, individuals, families volunteering, you see people who are clients who are volunteering because they want to give back. Everybody wants to help. So it's just a great way for us to all really do what I believe is a basic human instinct of really helping each other out. All right, and I think that we're going to let Leslie have the last word uh, for the show today. Uh, If any of our listeners are hoping to get involved themselves, I mean, we'll just put in a plug briefly for Second Harvest. They, about half of their man hours are volunteer hours, so they are an organization that is very much dependent on volunteers, but also on food donations and monetary donations. Those are much appreciated as well. But for folks that are not living in San Mateo or Santa Clara County, uh, we are going to help you find ways to give and contribute to this uh, as well. Uh, Just head on over to kcbsradio.com. When you get there, you will find uh, a list of other food banks or other organizations working on this issue that uh, you can also contribute to no matter where you are in the Bay Area. How does that sound? It sounds like we're telling them how to. How to Bay Area. And that, <laughs> and that is the name of the show. Thank you very much for listening to the inaugural edition of How to Bay Area. I am Keith Manconi. And I'm Jenna Lane. And we will see you next time. Tengan una muy, muy, muy bonita mañana. Estamos contentos y alegres. Mi nombre es Joss Rodríguez y nos vemos hasta la próxima. <laughs> That's so good, man. That's amazing. That's great.